Section thirty three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three by James Boswell, Section thirty three. Johnson, who never liked to think of being old don't let us discourage one another edwards why doctor you look stout and hearty i am happy to see you so for the newspapers told us you were very ill johnson ay sir they are always telling lies of us old fellows wishing to be present at more of so singular a conversation as that between two fellow-collegians who had lived forty years in london without ever having chanced to meet i whispered to mr edwards that dr johnson was going home and that he had better accompany him now so edwards walked along with us i eagerly assisting to keep up the conversation Mr. Edwards informed Dr. Johnson that he had practised long as a solicitor in Chancery, but that he now lived in the country upon a little farm, about sixty acres, just by Stevenage in Hertfordshire, and that he came to London, to Barnard's Inn, number six, generally twice a week johnson appearing to me in a reverie mr edwards addressed himself to me and expatiated on the pleasure of living in the country boswell i have no notion of this sir what have you to entertain you is i think exhausted in half an hour edwards what don't you love to have hope realized i see my grass and my corn and my trees growing now for instance i am curious to see if this frost has not nipped my fruit trees johnson who we did not imagine was attending you find so you have fears as well as hopes so well did he see the whole when another saw but the half of a subject when we got to dr johnson's house and were seated in his library the dialogue went on admirably edwards sir i remember you would not let us say prodigious at college footnote don't sir accustom yourself to use big words for little matters End of footnote. and even then sir turning to me he was delicate in language and we all feared him footnote. johnson said to me afterwards sir they respected me for my literature and yet it was not great but by comparison sir it is amazing how little literature there is in the world boswell End of footnote. Johnson to Edwards. 
from your having practised the law long sir i presume you must be rich edwards no sir i got a good deal of money but i had a number of poor relations to whom i gave a great part of it johnson sir you have been rich in the most valuable sense of the word edwards but i shall not die rich johnson nay sure sir it is better to live rich than to die rich edwards i wish i had continued at college johnson why do you wish that sir edwards because i think i should have had a much easier life than mine has been i should have been a parson and had a good living like bloxham and several others and lived comfortably johnson sir the life of a parson of a conscientious clergyman is not easy i have always considered a clergyman as the father of a larger family than he is able to maintain i would rather have chancery suits upon my hands than the cure of souls no sir i do not envy a clergyman's life as an easy life nor do i envy the clergyman who makes it an easy life here taking himself up all of a sudden he exclaimed oh mr edwards i'll convince you that i recollect you do you remember our drinking together at an alehouse near pembroke gate Footnote very near the college facing the passage which leads to it from pembroke street still stands an old alehouse which must have been old in johnson's time End of footnote. at that time you told me of an eton boy who when verses on our saviour's turning water into wine were prescribed as an exercise brought up a single line which was highly admired vidit et erubuit lympha pudica deum Footnote. this line has frequently been attributed to dryden when a king's scholar at westminster but neither eton nor westminster have in truth any claim to it the line being borrowed with a slight change from an epigram by crashaw aque in vinum verse unde rubor vestris et non sua purpura limpis qua rosa mirantes tam nova mutat aquas numen convimbe presens agnoscite numen nympha purica deum vidit et erubuit malone what gave your springs a brightness not their own what rose so strange the wandering waters flushed heaven's hand o guests heaven's hand may here be known the spring's coy nymph has seen her god and blushed End of footnote. and i told you of another fine line in camden's remains an eulogy upon one of our kings who was succeeded by his son a prince of equal merit mira cano sol ocubuit nox nulla secuta est footnote 
he that made the verse following some ascribe it to giraldus cambrensis could adore both the sun rising and the sun setting when he could so cleanly honour king henry the second then departed and king richard succeeding mira tano sol occubuit nox nulla secuta est camden's remains eighteen seventy end of footnote edwards you are a philosopher dr johnson i have tried too in my time to be a philosopher but i don't know how cheerfulness was always breaking in Footnote. when mr hume began to be known in the world as a philosopher mr white a decent rich merchant of london said to him i am surprised mr hume that a man of your good sense should think of being a philosopher while i now took it into my head to be a philosopher for some time but tired of it most confoundedly and very soon gave it up pray sir said mr hume in what branch of philosophy did you employ your researches what books did you read books said mr white nay sir i read no books but i used to sit whole forenoons a yawning and poking the fire the french were more successful than mr edwards in the pursuit of philosophy horace walpole wrote from paris in seventeen sixty six the generality of the men and more than the generality are dull and empty they have taken up gravity thinking it was philosophy and english and so have acquired nothing in the room of their natural levity and cheerfulness End of footnote. mr burke sir joshua reynolds mr courtney mr malone and indeed all the eminent men to whom i have mentioned this have thought it an exquisite trait of character the truth is that philosophy like religion is too generally supposed to be hard and severe at least so grave as to exclude all gaiety edwards i have been twice married doctor you i suppose have never known what it was to have a wife johnson sir i have known what it was to have a wife and in a solemn tender altering tone i have known what it was to lose a wife it had almost broke my heart edwards how do you live sir for my part i must have my regular meals and a glass of good wine i find i require it johnson i now drink no wine sir early in life i drank wine for many years i drank none i then for some years drank a great deal edwards some hogs heads i warrant you johnson i then had a severe illness and left it off and i have never begun it again i never felt any difference upon myself from eating one thing rather than another nor from one kind of weather rather than another 
there are people i believe who feel a difference but i am not one of them and as to regular meals i have fasted from the sunday's dinner to the tuesday's dinner without any inconvenience i believe it is best to eat just as one is hungry but a man who is in business or a man who has a family must have stated meals i am a straggler i may leave this town and go to grand cairo without being missed here or observed there edwards don't you eat supper sir johnson no sir edwards for my part now i consider supper as a turnpike through which one must pass in order to get to bed johnson you are a lawyer mr edwards lawyers know life practically a bookish man should always have them to converse with they have what he wants edwards i am grown old i am sixty-five johnson i shall be sixty-eight next birthday come sir drink water and put in for a hundred mr edwards mentioned a gentleman who had left his whole fortune to pembroke college johnson whether to leave one's whole fortune to a college be right must depend upon circumstances i would leave the interest of the fortune i bequeath to a college to my relations or my friends for their lives it is the same thing to a college which is a permanent society whether it gets the money now or twenty years hence but i would wish to make my relations or friends feel the benefit of it this interview confirmed my opinion of johnson's most humane and benevolent heart his cordial and placid behaviour to an old fellow collegian a man so different from himself and his telling him that he would go down to his farm and visit him showed a kindness of disposition very rare at an advanced age he observed how wonderful it was that they had both been in london forty years without having ever once met and both walkers in the street too mr edwards when going away again recurred to his consciousness of senility and looking full in johnson's face said to him you'll find in dr young oh my coevals remnants of yourselves Footnote. Oh, my coevals, remnants of yourselves, poor human ruins, tottering o'er the grave, shall we, shall aged men like aged trees strike deeper their vile roots and closer cling, still more enamoured of this wretched soil? Young's Night Thoughts, Night Four. End of footnote johnson did not relish this at all but shook his head with impatience edwards walked off seemingly highly pleased with the honour of having been thus noticed by dr johnson when he was gone i said to johnson i thought him but a weak man johnson 
why yes sir here is a man who has passed through life without experience yet i would rather have him with me than a more sensible man who will not talk readily this man is always willing to say what he has to say yet dr johnson had himself by no means that willingness which he praised so much and i think so justly for who has not felt the painful effect of the dreary void when there is a total silence in a company for any length of time or which is as bad or perhaps worse when the conversation is with difficulty kept up by a perpetual effort johnson once observed to me tom tyers described me the best sir said he you are like a ghost you never speak till you are spoken to footnote according to mrs piozzi he liked the expression so well that he often repeated it he wrote to her have you not observed in all our conversations that my genius is always in extremes that i am very noisy or very silent very gloomy or very merry very sour or very kind in madame d'arblay's diary we read that dr johnson is never his best when there is nobody to draw him out and in her memoirs of dr burney she adds that the masterly manner in which as soon as any topic was started he seized it in all its bearings had so much the air of belonging to the leader of the discourse that this singularity was unsuspected save by the experienced observation of long years of acquaintance malone wrote in seventeen eighty three i have always found him very communicative ready to give his opinion on any subject that was mentioned he seldom however starts a subject himself but it is very easy to lead him into one what dugald stuart says of adam smith was equally true of johnson he was scarcely ever known to start a new topic himself or to appear unprepared upon those topics that were introduced by others johnson in his long fits of silence was perhaps like cooper but when aroused he was altogether unlike cooper says of himself the effect of such continual listening to the language of a heart hopeless and deserted is that i can never give much more than half my attention to what is started by others and very rarely start anything myself End of footnote. the gentleman whom he thus familiarly mentioned was mr thomas tyers son of mr jonathan tyers the founder of that excellent place of public amusement vauxhall gardens which must ever be an estate to its proprietor as it is peculiarly adapted to the taste of the english nation there being a mixture of curious show gay exhibition music vocal and instrumental not too refined for the general ear for all which only a shilling is paid 
Footnote. In summer 1792, additional and more expensive decorations having been introduced, the price of admission was raised to two shillings. I cannot approve of this. The company may be more select, but a number of the honest commilty are, I fear, excluded from sharing an elegant and innocent entertainment. An attempt to abolish the one shilling gallery at the playhouse has been very properly counteracted. Boswell. End of footnote. And, though last, not least, good eating and drinking for those who choose to purchase that regale. Mr. Thomas Tyers was bred to the law, but having a handsome fortune, vivacity of temper, and eccentricity of mind, he could not confine himself to the regularity of practice. He therefore ran about the world with a pleasant carelessness, amusing everybody by his desultory conversation. Footnote. Tyres is described in the idler under the name of Tom Restless. A circumstance, says Mr. Nichols, pointed out to me by Dr. Johnson himself. When Tom Restless rises, he goes into a coffee-house, where he creeps so near to men whom he takes to be reasoners as to hear their discourse and endeavours to remember something which when it has been strained through Tom's head, is so near to nothing that what it once was cannot be discovered. This he carries round from friend to friend through a circle of visits, till, hearing what each says upon the question, he becomes able, at dinner, to say a little himself. And as every great genius relaxes himself among his inferiors, meets with some who wonder how so young a man can talk so wisely. End of footnote. He abounded in anecdote, but was not sufficiently attentive to accuracy. I therefore cannot venture to avail myself much of a biographical sketch of Johnson, which he published, being one among the various persons ambitious of appending their names to that of my illustrious friend. That sketch is, however, an entertaining little collection of fragments. Those which he published of Pope and Addison are of higher merit, but his fame must chiefly rest upon his political conferences, in which he introduces several eminent persons delivering their sentiments in the way of dialogue, and discovers a considerable share of learning, various knowledge, and discernment of character. This much may I be allowed to say of a man who was exceedingly obliging to me, and who lived with Dr. Johnson in as easy a manner as almost any of his very numerous acquaintance. Mr. Edwards had said to me aside that Dr. Johnson should have been of a profession. Footnote that accurate judge of human life dr johnson has often been heard by me to observe that it was the greatest misfortune which could befall a man to have been bred to no profession and pathetically to regret that this misfortune was his own 
End of footnote. I repeated the remark to Johnson, that I might have his own thoughts on the subject. Johnson. Sir, it would have been better that I had been of a profession. I ought to have been a lawyer. Boswell. I do not think, sir, it would have been better, for we should not have had the English dictionary. Johnson. But you would have had reports. Boswell. Aye, but there would not have been another who could have written the dictionary. There have been many very good judges. Suppose you had been Lord Chancellor. You would have delivered opinions with more extent of mind and in a more ornamented manner than perhaps any Chancellor ever did or ever will do. But I believe causes have been as judiciously decided as you could have done. Johnson. Yes, sir. Property has been as well settled. Johnson, however, had a noble ambition floating in his mind, and had undoubtedly often speculated on the possibility of his supereminent powers being rewarded in this great and liberal country by the highest honours of the state. Sir William Scott informs me that upon the death of the late Lord Lichfield, who was Chancellor of the University of Oxford, he said to Johnson, What a pity it is, sir, that you did not follow the profession of the law. Footnote. He had wished to study it. End of footnote. You might have been Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, and attained to the dignity of the peerage, and now that the title of Lichfield, your native city, is extinct, you might have had it. Footnote. The fourth Earl of Lichfield, the Chancellor of Oxford, died in 1772. The title became extinct in 1776 on the death of the fifth Earl. The present title was created in 1831. End of footnote. Johnson, upon this, seemed much agitated, and in an angry tone exclaimed, why will you vex me by suggesting this when it is too late? But he did not repine at the prosperity of others. The late Dr. Thomas Leland told Mr. Courtney that when Mr. Edmund Burke showed Johnson his fine house and lands near Beaconsfield, Johnson coolly said, Non equidem invidio, miro magis. Footnote. I am not entirely without suspicion that Johnson may have felt a little momentary envy, for no man loved the good things of this life better than he did, and he could not but be conscious that he deserved a much larger share of them than he ever had. I attempted in a newspaper to comment on the above passage in the manner of Warburton, who must be allowed to have shown uncommon ingenuity in giving to any author's text whatever meaning he chose it should carry. As this imitation may amuse my readers, I shall here introduce it. No saying of Dr. Johnson's has been more misunderstood than his applying to Mr. Burke when he first saw him at his fine place at Beaconsfield, non equidem invidio miro magis. 
these two celebrated men had been friends for many years before mr burke entered on his parliamentary career they were both writers both members of the literary club when therefore dr johnson saw mr burke in a situation so much more splendid than that to which he himself had attained he did not mean to express that he thought it a disproportionate prosperity but while he as a philosopher asserted an exemption from envy non equidem in video he went on in the words of the poet miro magis thereby signifying either that he was occupied in admiring what he was glad to see or perhaps that considering the general lot of men of superior abilities he wondered that fortune who is represented as blind should in this instance have been so just boswell johnson in his youth had translated non equidem in video miro magis by my admiration only i expressed no spark of envy harbours in my breast End of footnote. yet no man had a higher notion of the dignity of literature than johnson or was more determined in maintaining the respect which he justly considered as due to it of this besides the general tenor of his conduct in society some characteristical instances may be mentioned he told sir joshua reynolds that once when he dined in a numerous company of booksellers where the room being small the head of the table at which he sat was almost close to the fire he persevered in suffering a great deal of inconvenience from the heat rather than quit his place and let one of them sit above him goldsmith in his diverting simplicity complained one day in a mixed company of lord camden i met him said he at lord clare's house in the country and he took no more notice of me than if i had been an ordinary man the company having laughed heartily johnson stood forth in defence of his friend nay gentlemen said he dr goldsmith is in the right a nobleman ought to have made up to such a man as goldsmith and i think it is much against lord camden that he neglected him Footnote. the neglect was avenged a few years after goldsmith's death when lord camden sought to enter the literary club and was blackballed i am sorry to add wrote mr sir william jones in seventeen eighty that lord camden and the bishop of chester were rejected when bishops and chancellors honour us by offering to dine with us at a tavern it seems very extraordinary that we should ever reject such an offer but there is no reasoning on the caprice of men End of footnote nor could he patiently endure to hear that such respect as he thought due only to higher intellectual qualities should be bestowed on men of slighter though perhaps more amusing talents i told him that one morning when i went to breakfast with garrick who was very vain of his intimacy with lord camden footnote, craddock was dining with the literary club when garrick arrived very late 
full dressed he made many apologies he had been unexpectedly detained at the house of lords and lord camden had insisted upon setting him down at the door of the hotel in his own carriage johnson said nothing but he looked a volume End of footnote. he accosted me thus pray now did you did you meet a little lawyer turning the corner eh no sir said i pray what do you mean by the question why replied garrick with an affected indifference yet as if standing on tiptoe lord camden has this moment left me we have had a long walk together johnson well sir garrick talked very properly lord camden was a little lawyer to be associating so familiarly with a player sir joshua reynolds observed with great truth that johnson considered garrick to be as it were his property he would allow no man either to blame or to praise garrick in his presence without contradicting him footnote miss burney records this year seventeen seventy eight that mrs thrale said to johnson garrick is one of those whom you suffer nobody to abuse but yourself for if any other person speaks against him you browbeat him in a minute why madam answered he they don't know when to abuse him and when to praise him i will allow no man to speak ill of david that he does not deserve End of footnote. Having fallen into a very serious frame of mind in which mutual expressions of kindness passed between us, such as will be thought too vain in me to repeat, I talked with regret of the sad inevitable certainty that one of us must survive the other. Johnson. Yes, sir. That is an affecting consideration. I remember Swift in one of his letters to Pope says, I intend to come over that we may meet once more and when we must part it is what happens to all human beings footnote the passage is in a letter dated dublin october the twelfth seventeen twenty seven here is my maintenance wrote swift and here my convenience if it pleases god to restore me to my health I shall readily make a third journey. If not, we must part, as all human creatures have parted. He never made the third journey. End of footnote. End of section 33.